Today on episode 95 of Teaching in Higher Ed, I speak with Mike Trong about teaching in the digital age. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome to the show Dr. Mike Trong. He is the director of the Office of Innovative Teaching and Technology for Azusa Pacific University. Mike provides vision, strategy, and leadership for faculty development, instructional technology, and online education at Azusa Pacific. And prior to coming to APU, Mike was the founding member at the University of California Merced, where he helped establish its Center for Research on Teaching Excellence and the Merit Writing Program. Mike Trong, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Well, thank you, Bonnie, for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I am too. And I told you before we started recording, having met you at the Lilly Conference, just how completely jazzed I was about all that you have to talk about with us today, teaching in the digital age, both where we are today as teachers, and then also what what the future might have for us. But before we get to that, I also was really interested just in hearing you talk a little bit about your own career journey, because so many times I know the undergraduate students that I work with, and, and I, me too in my life, it's not like they're so different from me, but we think about it as it's some linear path, and then it hardly ever is. So do you mind sharing a little bit about what your doctoral studies were in and a little bit of your curveballs along the way? So when I was an undergrad, I, I was a major in American studies, and I really loved that subject matter. And then at the, towards the end of my undergraduate years, my faculty, my advisor recommended, you know, you should look into grad school. And one of the things I looked into was sort of ethnic studies, because you now I wanted to focus on Asian American studies. And so I just sort of took that leap and I went directly from undergrad to grad. And I was at UC San Diego at that time, the ethnic studies program was brand new. I think it was probably in its second year. And so I got into it. There were only four of us in the cohort. And, mm. you know, I, I found that to be sort of exciting. And I got to, you know, have all this attention from our, our faculty. And uh, I spent seven years in grad school doing ethnic studies, focusing sort of on Asian American studies and sort of the, the role of race and religion and how that kind of interacted. But then towards the end of my career there, I, I realized the academic track that I was on wasn't what I you know, really thought it was going to be. And so I, I kind of ended up doing teaching in sort of general ed and teaching writing. And then when the opportunity came up at a new university that opened up at UC Merced, I sort of went there as a family faculty in the writing program. And then from there, I went on to being an assistant director of the program, and then I went to faculty development, and then from there I went to educational technology, and then, you know, probably, what, 14 years later, <laughs> today I'm, I'm overseeing an office of innovative teaching and technology. And so in, in so many ways, when I started, this field and this position that I have today didn't really exist. 
And so and I've been very, very fortunate along the way to be able to kind of twist the twists and turns that have kind of led me here today. So I'm really thankful. And I think I really do enjoy the work I do now. When you shared that story with me at the conference and then hearing you tell it again now, I just see this real strength in you of being able to see what is present and then also to see what is coming and, and or, or perhaps your own dreams, your own vision for the future and navigate those. And that's really a difficult thing to do. So it sounds like a, a real gift that you have. Yeah, well, I think part of what I've always loved about being in education and in general and higher education in particular is the the opportunities that are afforded to faculty. And I, I recognize towards the end of my graduate career that, I mean, I, I love to teach and you know, I was, I love the classroom and I, I love sort of the interactions with the students, but I real, realize that there's so many ways you can sort of contribute to higher education. And I just had this technology background just as a kid, you know, growing up, I had, you know, sort of the, the Atari 64XZ, I think it was my first computer where you had this big, you know, five and, a half, five and a quarter floppy disk you have to load up. And, and I've just had that as part of my kind of upbringing. And I wanted sort of to see whether or not I can actually take my personal sort of hobby and integrated what I uh, was doing in the classroom. So I actually was one of the first first people to kind of do kind of hybrid or blended teaching when I was in, in grad school and I you know, utilize our learning management systems back in the day, which is very, very sort of clunky and old. And But I, I think along the way, I, it sort of gave me this sort of possibility like, wow, and I think there's actually a career path here that you know, as the technology became more and more pervasive, I was able to kind of integrate what I, I love to do on the personal end with sort of the professional career path I was on. And sort of this marriage between the pedagogy and technology is what sort of into today I'm still very passionate about. So, Well, I've been so excited to have you on the show. And I know I have asked you to do the challenging thing, which is really take what are essentially two different episodes and we're making it into one. So we're taking this gift that you have of looking at what is today. And then we're also going to have a lens toward the future. So the first piece of our episode is going to be things that we could be doing today as faculty to helping us be more effective teaching in the digital age. And you have a few recommendations for us. Tell me about the importance of paying attention. Yes, I think in our instant and very distracted culture that we're in right now, it's so critical to learn how to pay attention. And this is not only for faculty, but I think it's for how we teach our students. One of the references I'll, I'll talk about later is you know, Kathy Davidson in her book, Now You See It. She, ta- she starts with talking about a video of people passing the basketball around and your, your job is to count how many times the ball is passed. Uh, and then along the way, if you're just focusing on that, what you'll miss is this person in a gorilla suit. And then because towards the end of the video, they'll ask you, so how many times was the ball passed? And you know, most people couldn't count. If they were focusing on that, they, they were able to do that. But then if you were totally focused on that, you totally missed the fact that there was this person in the gorilla suit kind of walking by and that the video and you totally would have missed it. And I think her point there is that in this distracted culture, you know, we do pay attention to things, but when you're focusing on one thing, you miss other things. And sometimes the other things that you're missing are some of the more important critical things. And so I, I feel like you know, this is a really critical skill for faculty. Sometimes we get so caught up in 
all that we need to do in our day-to-day life and you know, trying to keep up with emails and keep up with social media and keep up with our grading and publishing and so on to stop to have that a time to pay attention like so exactly what are the issues that I'm trying to deal with here uh, or what is that that learning objective I'm trying to focusing on and to have that ability to focus and to pay attention I think is so important. The way that my university has been scheduling me for the last couple of years now, and it looks like unless some huge changes happen, that'll be the case for the fall again, is teaching three sections of the same class. And I've been teaching two sections of the same class for as long as I can remember. So it's a normal thing for me to teach the same planned classroom experience multiple times during the day. And sometimes people will say, doesn't that get boring? And I think... Never, because if I'm truly paying attention, every single one of those experiences is completely different from the other one, because you're paying attention to what kind of learning is happening in the classroom. And it'll be interesting to see how I do. I do use, as listeners will know, I use this the software called Poll Everywhere, and I can instantly see what they're what they actually learned from what we just talked about. And it'll be different in the different sections. It's interesting just to see different personalities, different different ways that they're experiencing learning. So yeah, being being able to pay attention is so critical and also completely exhausting, which I think yeah. brings us to your next point, and that is the importance of slowing down. Yeah, just the effects of the digital age on everybody in general is this pace of you know faster, more, and it's ongoing, it's relentless. And I think to counter that kind of effect, you really, I think all of us as faculty, we need to kind of find ways that forces us to slow down. And for me personally, I think one of the things I try to do on a daily basis, I journal uh, and I I know I I journal on my digital device, but it's still, it's a process where it slows me down. I reflect on, I I have this, I used to do this one sentence reflection, which when I first started journaling, because I just, sometimes it can be overwhelming to like think of all the stuff you need to journal, but then if you just kind of give yourself a goal, okay, I'm just going to do one sentence. And the sentence is, what was the most important thing that happened today? And then it kind of forced me to reflect. It forced me to kind of recount the activities. And then I kind of do my one sentence. And then in doing that, I think it really does kind of center me. And it gives me kind of that idea of, okay, so what was that one most important thing that happened? And again, I think this is connected to the the first point about paying attention is as you do pay attention, it does allow you to kind of have that sense of intentionality and that purpose and that focus. And then slowing down actually is reinforces that thing about paying attention because then when you go with the next day and you realize, oh, I'm looking at like, what's the most important thing I can do today? Is it you know working with that one student or is it trying to finish that paper or is it trying to prepare for that presentation? And, and what you're saying about being able to kind of prioritize, I mean, just to, to do that one thing, you know, that, what's that one thing that's the most important thing you have to do today and and to slow down and to kind of have these practices of journaling and reflecting and reading I think it just lends to that ability to kind of step out of the chaos of the day-to-day life and to be able to say okay I need to slow down so that I can take notes of what is the most important thing happening 
One of the former guests on the show who has become a friend, Doug McKee from Yale, has talked about journaling in each of his classes after he teaches each of his classes. And he hasn't phrased it as a one-sentence reflection, but it easily would serve the purpose of just writing one sentence, what worked, what didn't today in that class. And if we use the technology and if if whatever journaling tool it is we ha- ha- are using has some kind of a tagging system in it or even just a search function, then we could have a hashtag, the name of the class, and then a hashtag with whatever you're going to name that particular. Is it a lecture you want to name or a learning objective you want to name? And then the next time you were going to do class planning for that, whether it's next semester or you're not going to teach that class again for two years, what a difference that can make. Because most of us don't slow down, myself very much included, when something's broken about whatever it was we just did. We don't have the time to fix it right then during the semester. But if we don't capture that somewhere, we're not going to really get to have what is often called double loop learning, the idea that we're learning from our own learning. And if we don't slow down enough to have that reflection, we completely miss it. So you've inspired me. I've not done it. I just know that it's possible to do. And and one of the people I really like to listen to is a guy by the name of Tim Stringer. Tim Stringer is is big in the personal productivity space. And one of the things he talks about is if we really love the tools that we're using, we'll use them more. And I know for many people, the journaling app on the Mac that they just absolutely love is called Day One. And they just came out with some new versions on the Mac and on the iOS devices. And it's just a beautiful application. So it's nice when you have a tool that you really like to use. Do you want to share what you used for journaling? That's exactly what I use, day one. <laughs> so yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. So yeah, I, I've been using that for about two, two and a half years or so. And yeah, I, I, I do look forward to the new features and the new version they have. And then they have multiple video, uh, mod- multiple picture images you can add and some other additional features. But for me, I, I really like to keep that journaling experience as simple as possible because, you know, everything in life is not simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I just load my page and I get, you know, I usually have an image and that's where I try to throughout the day, you know, take pictures of my day, you know, whether it's a picture of you know, the meeting I'm in or in the classroom I'm in or whatever the case may be, it just so that there's possibility of that image to kind of represent the most important thing that happened, you know, in, in my day. So, And for people on the Windows environment, Evernote is a multi-platform notebook system that would work really well. And also now Microsoft has been doing some amazing things with their notebook program called one note and that would yeah. be another option many campuses now subscribe to office 365 you might even have it on your computer and not realize it but other good options for journaling tell me about being human it's an interesting recommendation because i think everybody thinks you know we are human why do we need to be a human uh, i think for me what that means is i try to prioritize in-person flesh kind of in in the flesh kind of interactions over virtual ones when possible or when it's appropriate oftentimes i think we turn to texting we turn to emails we turn to all these virtual ways of communicating first uh, and because those are the easiest and those are most convenient and then we sort of pick out that human touch, that human face-to-face interaction. Um, I, you know, a lot of uh, been has been written about this. Now, Sherry Turkle from MIT, she's written a couple of books about this, and you know, one in particular is talking about I think alone 
together. And she talks about how we as human society, at least in the West, we really do expect more from technology than we do from from one another. And, and what she means by that is we, we oftentimes do turn to those virtual ways of communicating or these virtual devices. You now we turn on our phone first before we would get up our seat and you know, go walk down the hallway and talk to our, our colleague or, or something like that. And, and so for me, I, you know, when I'm physically here on campus, I really try to prioritize that, hu- that in hu- in-person human kind of interaction. And that means you know, getting away from my machines and being able to say, no, let's take a walk. Let's have lunch. Let's you know, do the, the traditional kinds of conversations that typically doesn't happen in this digital world that we're in. There were a couple things I really took away when reading her book alone. I read Alone Together right when it first came out. And it it helped for me stop being so angry at students for being rude, what I would perceive as being rude. You know, you're sitting in my office and your phone's going off and how dare you look at your phone kind of that whole idea that this is somehow their fault. And I was so much better than that when I was in college. And to realize that it was their generation that was so yearning and still is so yearning for attention from their parents. And that many times their parents were sitting at the park on their own devices and they just couldn't get them to, to get off their own screen. So they kind of learned it from the in social environment that they grew up in. And I hadn't really realized that. It felt like that because I mean, I had kids much later in life than I thought I was going to be able to. I feel like I missed a generation or something. It was kind of interesting to imagine because I, I mean, my mom was a stay at home mom as I grew up and I never yearned for attention from her. I mean, in the sense of she, she did, by the way, teach me that to never get bored and to, you know, read, read alone or play alone. It wasn't like we weren't expected to learn how to emerge from boredom. And we were really good at that. But just the idea that she, it would never be if I had something serious I needed to share with her that she was going to be sitting on her computer or sitting on a phone or what have you. So, yeah, I think that's one one real thing I took away. And the second real thing I took away from reading and reflecting on her her second book and her first one, her second book is Reclaiming Conversations, was just that it's the importance of us modeling and teaching that for our students. And that instead of seeing it as how rude that is, I could actually teach them that because I put my phone away. And even sometimes when I'll explain, I'm going to be putting my phone away because I want to give you my undivided attention. It's really, I'm so glad that you're here. It's so nice to connect one-on-one and that can have a lot greater impact on them is just watching that be modeled. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is not just in sort of the workplace. I mean, it kind of seeps into your personal life too. And I oftentimes, you know, in our household, when I walk in end of the day, I come home, I try to sort of put my phone and my computer in a corner in sort of the office and, and no, uh, unfortunately, our office is in, and our dining room is in all one big room. So it's not like I can escape the, the room, but at least I put it in that corner and then I sort of don't touch it again until I'm done with sort of putting the kids to bed and you know, sort of start my evening routine. But I think you know, before I doing this, I would be like always still be on the phone while know I'm home and of course and the kids will look at me and they're like okay play with me and I'm like okay and then of course I'm half there with them and so I think yeah this practice of being present in person um, 
prioritizing the human person before you and to to kind of give them their full you know the attention that they deserve i think it's so important and it's so critical in teaching and the learning environment because oftentimes that's what is the most meaningful and most impactful experience of the teaching learning is that exchange of ideas between two people trying to work through those things and not sort of having these distracted conversations. Mm. And speaking of disconnecting and, and making sure we're focused, tell me more about disconnecting digitally. I think it's a real discipline to be able to turn off digitally and all our devices and to leave it behind. There are so many ways that we can connect today and the default is to be connected all the time. And you know, one of the, the books I've read that has really profoundly changed my habits is William Powers' uh, Hamlet's Blackberry. And in that book, he talks about this idea of the conundrum of the connected life. What a phrase and, and how uh, on the one hand, we think you know, these technology, and we know these technologies are helping us do these amazing things. We're more productive, more efficient, uh, more impactful than ever in our society. However, because it's such a pervasive and, and invasive type of culture that's taking place, we become sort of slaves to it. And we, when you're always connected, then there's no time to really disconnect. And we, you know, we, we really have lost that discipline discipline to kind of take the Sabbath. You know, I think he talks about the digital Sabbath and he describes in his book, you know, he and his family started practicing a, a Sabbath where on Friday, from Friday evening to Sunday evening, they would literally unplug their Wi-Fi, turn up, unplug their computer, and there would be no digital not in the television. I don't think they they even use the television for one year. And what that experiment uh, helped them as a family and helped them particularly was to understand, wow, I mean, when you are able to disconnect digitally and you have that moment of human touch and, and you focusing on the solitude and on the reflection, it did lead to a happier and more fulfilling and productive life. You know, he, he didn't feel like he was missing out or I mean, when he was you know, online again, he actually was more focused and more intentional and he got to see things in a different perspective because of that downtime. And so I think, you know, as faculty, you know, oftentimes we're just so, I mean, our work isn't eight to five. You know, we're always constantly thinking about the next thing, you know, whether it's preparing for class, preparing for a paper, preparing for the next conference. And to always be on can actually have detrimental effects on our productivity. And so if we can kind of have that discipline to turn things off. And so I've tried a semi-light version of what William Powers has done. And so from Friday evening to about Sunday afternoon, I, I don't turn on my computer, but I do have access to my phone. So my if I were to do work, it's less productive because I just get frustrated. Like, oh, I can't write this as fast or, oh, I can't do this. And, and, and I just kind of oftentimes just give up. So... But it's, it's an interesting discipline, and it's an important discipline that I think we all need to cultivate. That discipline that you're talking about, how great, too, to make it hard for yourself to do whatever it is, because <laughs> that really can then shape those, those behaviors. One thing that really helped for me was to stop thinking about that it literally had to be an entire day. Because when I think about the word Sabbath, in my particular case, it's actually not accurate, by the way. It's an inaccurate, but, but I thought about, oh, it has to be all of Sunday. And I would think, well, when I'm teaching these doctoral students, a lot of them 
that's their day to, to really devote to schoolwork. And of course, I, ideally, I'd like to say, gosh, it would be so great if they got to take a day of rest, but they don't. And, and so I think, well, I couldn't go the whole day then because they might really have a question and I would feel like I, I was letting them down in some way. And so a, a good friend of mine said, how about six o'clock Saturday until six o'clock Sunday? And it's such, it's such an easy solution, but it was right there in front of me and I just didn't get it. And that made so much more sense to me to take the 24 hours, but to take it not for an entire from sunup kind of until the, until I went to sleep that night. I mean, it, that yeah. really, really made a big difference, even though it's probably yeah. so simple. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's more of the spirit of the law than sort of the letter of the law. And I think as long as you are intentional about being able to kind of disconnect from the digital world, uh, you know, to not always be checking stuff, emails or social networks or whatever it is. That's really the, the meaning behind that Sabbath is to be able to disconnect, have distance and to, to leave it behind for a period of time. And then when you come back, you're a lot more focused and refreshed. Yeah, it really does give us power to create things in our own mind that when we're on those tra- trails just, just doesn't have the space or context to happen. Well, the second part of our show is we normally do recommendations, but you have shared about three powerful books that have re- you've reflected on this, and we'll be sure to link to those in the show notes, which will be at teachingandhighered.com slash 95. But I'm going to take this opportunity to let you share a little bit about the future of teaching in the digital age. And particularly, my recommendation today is going to be for people to visit your department's website. And especially I really found helpful your section on blended learning. And that has some wonderful resources to studies that you have done in looking at blended learning at your institution. And then you also link to other studies that have been done. It's a great place to visit. But I know specifically, you're going to share a little bit about teaching in the digital classroom and an event that you had around this. So tell us about this event and some of the things that came out. So last fall, our office, which is more of a teaching learning office, partnered with our IT office. And we said, you know, let's work together on putting on an event that will allow faculty to have a glimpse of what the future classroom might look like. And so we, you know, we worked together on sort of the agenda and we invited vendors and we sort of had these really different types of uh, scenarios. And so for example, the setup that we had was a one-button studio, which we learned from Penn State, where basically the a faculty were, you know, if they wanted to record themselves doing a lecture or voiceover or some sort of video of them doing something, uh, they would be able to go to this classroom or this room and put in a little USB memory stick, press one button, the lights would turn on, the camera would start recording, the audio would be perfect, the lighting would be perfect, the framing, everything would be automatically perfectly framed and ready to go. And all the faculty would have to do is just focus on the content of what they want to do. And you know, it could be a blue, uh, a green screen, and they can add you no know, graphics in the background, or they can have you no know, other things that could be layered on top. But the idea is that today, because there are so many more ways that we can teach, and one is to kind of have more of the visual, the video, multimedia uh, content, and a lot of faculty have told us, you know, it's just really challenging. To, I'm not that technical. I don't know what 
you know, equipment to buy and I don't really know how to do this thing. And so with the one button studio, we've kind of taken all those intricacies of doing video recording and sound recording away. And basically it's this one button. You, they start, they press a button and when they're done, they press that one, but the same button and it stops and then it, it just let, downloads it to their thumb drive or they can actually upload it to their, you know, we have Google apps here. And so it uploads it to their Google drive and, and it's done. And obviously there's, there are, you know, faculty who want to have a cleaner, better finished product would do a, some minor editing, but you know, we can assist them with that. And that's usually the easy part. So that's just one of the examples that, you know, of, the, of the things. And then we also had you know, other things like the 3D. Intel and Hewlett-Packard had these simulation 3D virtual reality types of software and tools that they were kind of introducing. And faculty, and I think one of the nursing faculty was really interested in this one anatomy virtual reality. Like you put on these glasses and you can kind of go into the operating room and and you would sort of be able to slice and dice a, a, a like a human body in uh, with you know this little tool and it was really really neat because it's it's something that I think isn't really in the mainstream at this point but I think in the next you know five years I would say virtual reality and the simulation would be very very much part of higher ed and so we we as a entire event. So we had this for three days and we had, you know, over a hundred faculty, you know, come through and, you know, the consistent feedback that we got was that they really were inspired by some of the technologies. But at the same time, they were a little intimidated because they were like, wow, I don't know how I'm going to do this because I'm not that techie or I'm not that. And, and this is sort of part of our job as our, in our office is to make sure, you know, we, we kind of come alongside and we support them and we sort of provide them the handrails that they need to be able to kind of walk down this path. And so we always tell them, you're not alone. We're here to help you and support you in whatever you need, whether it's the training, whether it's just to think through how this integrates with your curriculum or think through how this might change the way you currently teach. I mean, that's sort of the, the nice piece that of our office you know, is that we, we come alongside sort of to bring the pedagogy with the you know, leading the technology as opposed to the other way around, which oftentimes a lot of people talk about now, if you start with technology and then you kind of tack on pedagogy, usually you don't get great practice. But if you start with the pedagogy and then you look at how technology can enhance and improve the pedagogy, and that's really where you, great, you get great learning. One of the things that you mentioned was this one button studio, and that could easily be something where if I if I were hearing about it for the first time, I'd be thinking, well, we could never do that. And actually, you mentioned this is originally coined that that word or phrase one button studio was coined and created by Penn State. And I will be linking to their site in the show notes, but I just went there right now. So I could link to them and they have an app even now. With the Mac OS app, the One Button Studio is now accessible to everyone around the world. The app integrates with third-party hardware to give you the automated and streamlined video recording studio. So that, that idea that implementing this on a campus, they've already built the blueprint for you. And in fact, they even have the whole setup, what they bought and what some different tiers are of purchase options. You could have sort of your, if I recall, it's sort of like a... Goldilocks and the three bears, the minimal exactly, requirements yeah. and then the next tier. And then if you really wanted to knock it out of the park kind of idea. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, that we're in the midst of building that one button studio and we're hoping to have that available by the summer so that we can sort of do a soft launch of, you know, just giving faculty a chance to try it out. And then, uh, and this is really related to our blended learning initiative because one of the big pieces of blended learning is how do you put some, some of your content online. Uh, and this is where I think we can have faculty come in and record their lectures and be able to kind of have chunk, smaller chunks of, of content and put that online and then free up some of the time in the classroom to be able to you know, focus on interactions and engagement piece. This idea of addressing the real, real legitimate concern of I'm not that technical, this all feels to beyond me. I see that come out in your website and how you've designed it. I mean, that you could not have accidentally stumbled upon <laughs> that friendly of a website to navigate. What are some of the things that you think about when putting together resources for your faculty on the web to make it seem really more accessible and doable to them? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we, we recognize and we want to help faculty is that you know, they are busy and they have so many responsibilities up upon their shoulders and we want to make it as easy as possible to access materials and we subscribe to a lot of you know, professional development materials, you know, like Magna Publishing, they have a 20-minute mentor commons, which is a library of videos, 20-minute videos where you can just go in, listen to 20-minute video from this you know, the expert in, let's say, discussion, how to facilitate discussion or how to do active learning. And, and they can just go in, watch something, and then quickly be able to use that and apply it in their next class. And, and we also have the Wiley Learning Library. And so we subscribe to a handful of these resources in addition to the things that we've done. And so most of what we try to do is make our resources as on demand as possible so that busy faculties who may only have time, they may not have time to come to our workshops or have these individual consultations, but if they go to their website and if they get what they need and it accomplishes sort of it answers their question, then that's really you know, what we're trying to aim for is to that service, self-service on demand as much as they can get. And, and if they, obviously, we're here for them if they want consultation, where we also continually offer workshops and institutes and ways for faculty to kind of dive deeper. But yeah, we try to, as much as we can, make things as practical and as available possible on our website. Well, it's such a great thing to be able to come and browse your website. And I'm, I, again, my recommendation is that people go click that link and check out all the great resources that you have up there and think about how people may be able to implement those in their own teaching. It's not, by the way, only for people listening from faculty development centers, but also people listening who want to incorporate more blended learning into their teaching or other things that you heard during the episode or are available on their website. Is there anything you want to say about teaching in the digital age before we close the episode? Uh, sure. Yeah. So here's part of my concluding remark. So I think, Bonnie, I, I appreciate the fact that you're doing this podcast because I think this is such an important conversation to have. And, and I've started listening you know, since I met you at Lily a few months back. You know, I, I started listening to a couple of episodes and I feel like, you no, know, when I do that, I feel like I'm part of this larger conversation that, you know, this community and oftentimes, you know, faculty, if if they're just doing their thing day in, day out, day in, day out, it can seem a little bit isolating and, and to lack that community, it can be a very discouraging feeling. And so I think to be able to listen to their podcast and to be able to have conversations like this and 
so I, I just encourage all the listeners and future listeners to to keep tuning in and to be able to contribute to the conversation because that's really where the power of, of teaching in higher ed is. It's in that the people who are involved, who are engaged, who want to help advance the profession. And so thank you for what you do. Continue and hopefully we can help support you in any way we can. Well, you've already done just that by being willing to invest your time with me. I think we spent two hours together at that conference because I just kept, I kept, I was hungry to learn from you. And and now you've just spent more time really investing in the broader community. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Yeah, this has been fun. And I look forward to hearing about what others are doing in higher ed. I could have kept talking to Mike for another two hours and kept going strong probably after that. But you all probably have things that you need to do. <laughs> so we'll just plan on having him back on the show in the future. And thanks again to Mike for contributing to this community and just for understanding, I guess, the strength of what we all have as we connect with just this passion that we have for teaching. Those of you that are listening who have yet to subscribe to the weekly update that I send, what you'll get is all the great show links. I'm going to link to a bunch of stuff on their website, as I mentioned, and the great tools and resources that Mike mentioned. You can subscribe and it'll come automatically in your inbox just once a week. And in that same email will be an article most weeks about either teaching or productivity written by me. You can subscribe at teaching in higher ed dot com slash subscribe. And I want to thank the so many of you that have been responding to my question about how I can support you in your professional development over the summer. I'm getting a lot of good feedback and some ideas percolating for how to just keep this community growing and the conversation continuing throughout these summer months that are coming before we know it. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.